right, well, since uh, next week is the Christmas party, this is going to be our last message in First Peter until uh, next semester. Isn't that crazy? What's that? Until next year. Wow. Indeed. And that uh, sounds a lot worse than it really is. It's only a couple weeks. All right. Well, the timing worked out pretty well, uh, just in terms of where we're at in the letter. And because um, Peter is wrapping up the first part of this letter, if you would, just go ahead and turn over to First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. Like I said, Peter's wrapping up the first section of this letter, and we're going to see he, he wraps it up, really. It's a good fitting ending to our teaching part of the semester because uh, he wraps it up kind of in dramatic fashion. It's, uh, it's an incredible text, incredible passage. I know a lot of you have been telling me you've been reading this and excited to talk about it and uh, ready to get there. Um, it's stunning for a number of reasons, but it's just absolutely full of Old Testament allusions. Uh, it's, it's chock full of them. It's like Peter's exclamation point uh, at the end of this section, kind of the grand finale of the, of the first part of the letter here. And this section has been all about uh, our identity as a church and our mission as the church. Right? So that's a great way you can kind of summarize, think about the first chapter and a half of 1 Peter. It's all about who we are, what we've received as a church, as the church, and the mission that we're now on, the responsibilities that we have as, as God's chosen people, we could say. You'll remember the theme of First Peter is this elect exiles idea. And if you've been with us, you're going to remember that, that this theme of being God's chosen people, the first part of that theme, the elect side of it, being God's chosen people is is his theme really through this, through this first section. And he wants us to embrace that identity. He wants us to embrace the fact that we, God's chosen us in his great mercy. He's chosen us out of the world, and he's chosen us to believe in his son. And that is election. And that choice of God to us in his great mercy, that's caused us to be, the second part of that phrase, exiles here exiles in this world. We're in a world where we do not belong. A world that's in rebellion against the Creator, against God. A world that's in rebellion against us too, and it makes life more difficult for us. And that's what Peter's readers were experiencing. We've seen that again and again. And that's what we experience too from time to time. Life is not easy as a result of following Christ. And Peter knows that we're tempted when life is difficult We're tempted to retreat in fear. We're tempted to wonder if we really belong to God when things get hard. We're tempted to retaliate in anger when people mistreat us. But Peter is all about this better way for the people of God, wanting us to see that clearly in this letter. There's a better way, and he's going to detail out that better way for us in the the rest of this letter, and we're going to look at next semester. It's a way that's sort of the high road, that's a noble path, that's fruitful and glorious in this life. It's eternally rewarding. But before he gets into all that, before we get into that next semester, he wants to make sure that we understand exactly what it means to be God's elect, to be God's chosen people. 
He wants that identity drilled deep into our hearts. And we've seen that again and again in this letter. So how's he done that? Right? How has he drilled that identity down in us? What's he been teaching us? Well, he's given us several metaphors to help us understand who we are as God's people. And they aren't just kind of any old metaphor that he just kind of grabbed out of the Greco-Roman Empire. Um, they're special metaphors. They're from the Old Testament. And by using these particular images, these particular metaphors, Peter's trying to help us understand that as the church, we are actively fulfilling what the first two-thirds of this book have predicted. Right? We're actively fulfilling what the Old Testament said would take place, what the prophets foretold. So what are some of these metaphors? What are some of these images we've seen that help us understand our identity as God's chosen people? Well, first, Peter opens the letter by helping us see that we are now part of God's own family. Right? Remember that. Part of God's own family. His own offspring, if you will. We could say it like this. We, we're, we're God's reborn family. And he launches with that theme, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1, all the way through the first part of chapter 2. And this language reminds us of something in particular. It reminds us of the promise of an offspring from Genesis 3 who would defeat the serpent and reverse the curse. He would turn everything around. And it reminds us, fast forward, several thousand years later, it reminds us of, of Isaiah's predictions that this offspring would create more offspring. And they would live forever. The book of Isaiah would say. They would live forever as his offspring. They would inherit the earth as part of his family. And Peter's shown us that we have been reborn into this very family through Jesus into God's family, God's offspring. God has fathered us in the new birth, and the church fulfills those predictions. And so that was his first metaphor, that we've been reborn into this family, and, he, and he's worked that metaphor all the way through the first few verses of chapter 2. Then in verse 4, Peter switched the image. He switched it from family to something related to house, or maybe better, temple, Last week, Peter helped us see that this second aspect of our identity is we are God's rebuilt temple, we could say. God's rebuilt temple. And we saw that it's always been God's intention to dwell with His people. From the Garden of Eden, to the tabernacle, to the actual physical temple, God's been moving toward us to dwell with His people again. The prophets predicted that after the temple was destroyed, the Messiah would come and he would rebuild that temple. And, interestingly, the Psalms say that he, would, he himself would be the cornerstone, Psalm 118. And now, Peter's told us that the church, it's as we expand and grow, that we are the fulfillment of these very promises of a, re, of a rebuilt temple that the Old Testament looked forward to. The end time temple, God's house, where God dwells, is being constructed right now as people repent and trust Jesus, as people become like Jesus. That's who we are. Second metaphor of our identity. And tonight, Peter's going to wrap up this theme by giving us one more image, one more frame, really, to help us understand both who we are as God's chosen people 
and the mission that we have. And like I said a minute ago, this isn't just some random add-on by Peter here. This paragraph, at the beginning in verse 9 of chapter 2, is one of the greatest paragraphs, one of the greatest sentences, summaries of in all Scripture of the church's identity and mission. It's his exclamation point to the, the entire first section of the letter, and it's really the hinge to the, to the back half of the letter. And we could frame it up like this. We could say, okay, what is the metaphor? We could say that the church is God's restored nation. God's restored nation. His restored people, we might say, but restored nation, I think, gets at it better. You could even say his true Israel. Now, in our text tonight, Peter's going to help us see that that we as the church are fulfilling God's promise, get this, God's promise to restore his nation in the last days. To restore his people Israel, true Israel, and to use his people as a light to the Gentiles. And Peter's point, which I'm going to try to argue for you tonight, is that is happening now in the church, according to Peter. So, calling tonight the restored nation. It's kind of our last metaphor of our identity in this, this opening chapter, chapter and a half of First Peter. God's restored nation. We're embracing our identity as, we might say, true Israel, or the true people of God. Now, if you know your Old Testament, well, actually, let's, let's jump in here. Let's read the text here. Then I'll say if you know your Old Testament. Chapter 2, look in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is an incredibly important passage. And even as we read it, you probably heard the language, right, of Peter's description here. And you can hear the Old Testament if you, like I said, if you know your Old Testament, you can hear it. And in fact, as we're going to see, Peter is using at least three separate Old Testament passages here that all have to do with Israel's role in God's plan. They all have to do with her final restoration to that role in God's plan. But that immediately raises a question, right? Like as we're thinking about this, for those of you who are thinking, and if you're new to this discussion, just hang with me tonight. All right? If this is your first time here, this is not normal what we do. Uh, tonight's going to be a little bit heady, okay? But if you, if you know this context, you know that Peter's writing to who? Predominantly. Jews or Gentiles? <laughs> I think it's debated, but I think he's writing to predominantly Gentiles. But even if he's writing to predominantly Jews, we're certain that there's Gentiles in this mix and that they make up this thing called the church. And so Peter is writing to the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So how can Peter take these texts in the Old Testament about the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant and apply them to the church in the New Covenant? Maybe you've never asked that question. It's a very important question. 
It's what lots of ink in the New Testament is spilled over. Now, the importance of this question you know, is, is hard to understate because to ask how Israel in the Old Testament relates to the church in the New is really asking how do the Testaments fit together? How does the whole plan unfold? What's God doing in the world and how is he doing it? Depending on how you answer that question will inform how you think of, about the entire Bible and especially God's plan in the Scriptures. So just to get our bearings, let me highlight two, two kind of ends of the spectrum, okay? Two of the, of the oppo- like kind of opposing views of the way to put the whole Bible together. If you grew up with a Presbyterian background, or if you grew up in kind of a, a Reformed Baptist tradition, you were likely taught something, something like this. Like the New Testament church is in some sense uh, replacing Israel in the Old Testament. Now again, I know that that's an extreme view, okay? But I'm saying... Lots of times, that's kind of how it's presented. The New Testament church has in some sense replaced Old Testament Israel in God's plan, in his program. So what I mean is that God's made certain promises to Israel, like land, descendants, other things. But those promises, these folks say, are being fulfilled spiritually in the church. But that's not exactly what Peter's saying here. It's close, but it's not exactly what he's saying here. So... Just kind of put a pin on that side. Got it? Now, there's another side of the spectrum. If you grew up Southern Baptist or Independent Baptist or really in a kind of a a Bible church, you were likely taught that the church is totally distinct from Israel, something different entirely. Right? And sort of the extreme view here is that the church age has been compared, like the church age that we're living in right now, has been compared to kind of a parenthesis in God's plan. Meaning, God was working with Israel through the Old Testament, but they rejected him. And so he kind of put a pause on the plan, open parenthesis, enter the church age. Now we are included in this plan. And then once the Gentiles are fully included, close parenthesis. And then he's going to pick up where he left off with Israel. Kind of in the theocratic kingdom. That's kind of the other end of that spectrum, kind of the most extreme view on the other side. And so they would say what Peter's doing here is merely using the language of Israel as an analogy for what God is doing in the church. It's like that. It isn't the fulfillment of that. Does that make sense? It's an analogy, not like one-to-one fulfillment. Exactly, like you draw equal sign, this is that. The other side would say this is like that. It's not the same thing. He's not claiming direct fulfillment. As we're going to see, that's not exactly what Peter's doing either. Um, on the other side, it's, it's more, what he's saying is more than just a, a mere analogy. So, how should we think about the church in Israel? Right? Like, what, what is that in the middle there? Somewhere in the middle. Well, this is a, not, those were, that was an oversimplification, like, massively. Okay? So, just give me grace on that. Um, I was talking to Tim O'Shara about this and how I was going to try to talk about these things. And he was like, wow, that is, uh, that is ambitious. So those are, the two, those are the two extremes, okay? Or not really even extremes, but two views that are kind of on the far ends. How should we think about the church in Israel? Well, I think that we could say that according to what Peter does here in this text, that the church is the fulfillment, not the replacement, but the fulfillment of God's promises to restore Israel. 
there's more to come. But it is the fulfillment of God's promises to restore Israel. But that statement, even as I say that, it needs some qualifying. Okay? So tonight, what I want to do is we have the premier text to talk about this issue. I want to help build out this theme of restoration in Scripture. This is what we're talking about. It's how God's restoring His people. And I want to do that along five headings. Well, actually six headings. Sorry, I threw another one in there. <laughs> it was five. But now it's six. All right? We're going to start in the Old Testament. And, uh, and we're going to get a bird's eye view of where these promises start. And then we're going to trace it into the new and look specifically at what Peter is doing here. I think the Old Testament background will really bring clarity to our text in 1 Peter. And not just this text, but I think it will help you have a better framework to understand the rest of the New Testament as well. That's why I'm taking a kind of a, a high-level pause here um, at the end of our semester and talking about this issue. Okay, so we're looking at five headings, six headings. Didn't change my notes. Just keep looking at my notes. Six headings. So when it comes to the theme of what we see in this, in this passage, that God restoring his people, God restoring Israel, okay? We need to get our bearings in the Old Testament. And God's promise to restore Israel is not the first time we see this theme of restoration. It actually is older than Israel, okay? It, it, it's before Israel. We see this cycle of, okay, God's mission, how sin corrupts that mission, then there's like an exile and a judgment for that sin, and then a restoration. Make sense? Restoration implies something else has gone wrong, doesn't it? Tracking with me? Okay. So let's let's look at these restoration cycles in the Old Testament. Let's start there and observe the pattern. So just like almost every theme we see in Scripture, where does it start? Genesis and where in Genesis? Yeah, Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah, you can just kind of know that that's where I'm going to start, you know, and that's where anybody should start when they're looking at themes. This cycle starts in, in Genesis 1 through 3 and in the garden with Adam and Eve, and you could say, well, there we go. We're looking at Adam to the flood, okay? You'll remember that before Israel ever came on the scene, before Israel was ever in existence, Adam was God's original covenant partner. He was, we might say, the first priest king, if you will. And Adam and Eve were given the mission of taking dominion. But they failed. Okay? Sin entered the world, and they were driven out of God's presence, an exile of sorts, out of the garden. Sin filled the world in the subsequent chapters of Genesis, and it led to God's cleansing judgment of the flood. So there's the first part of our cycle. We need restoring. Restoration was needed, and then it was found in Noah. God made another covenant, a new start, we might say, a renewed mission in Noah and his family. There's lots of parallels if you read the Noah story to the creation story. You'll notice those. But Noah's obedience as the covenant partner didn't last very long. Soon his obedience and the obedience of his family devolved It led to a unified rebellion against God at Babel. God judged humans and dispersed them. Another exile of sorts. And after that judgment, God again brought restoration 
by choosing another man in this same line, from Adam to Noah, Abraham. Or as he's described there, just Abram. And he made a covenant with Abram and his family, and he renewed the mission through Abram. And there was obviously ups and downs in this family's life, uh, but it, the promise, the covenant passed from Abraham to Isaac, his son, to Jacob, his son. And Jacob, you remember, was renamed Israel. And from Jacob came the nation of Israel. Eventually, this family, more like a nation, went to Egypt. But over time, through their idolatry, the scene changed and it devolved into their captivity in Egypt. Yet again, though, restoration came. Restoration came. God delivered Israel from Egypt through the Exodus. And this time, He made a covenant with the entire nation, not just one one man, but the entire nation. The Israelite covenant, people talk about the Mosaic covenant, but it's not made with Moses, it's made with Israel. He renewed the mission. God renewed the mission and He gave it to Israel as a kind of corporate Adam. As he makes this covenant with them in Exodus 19, I want you to listen to what he says, and I'm going to highlight a few key passages for you that are going to resurface again here. Exodus 19. He's making the covenant with the nation. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, notice, my treasured possession among all peoples. Talking to Israel. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me, here it is, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So it's clear that the Lord chose the nation of Israel to be His covenant partner, and if they were obedient, they would function like kings and priests. They would take dominion like kings, like Adam was supposed to reign, and they would mediate the knowledge and the presence of God like Adam was also supposed to do, the priestly side. And that's the point of being a holy nation, a nation that's unlike the other peoples of the earth that are set aside by God for God to be a faithful covenant partner if you obey my voice and keep my covenant. You see that? It's partnership language. But did they do that? The answer is no. That obedience didn't last long either. So right out of the gate, they made a golden calf. And throughout their history, the cycle continued. They kept going astray. God kept judging them. And God, in His mercy, also kept restoring them. Just read the book of Judges. You see that cycle again and again and again. Eventually, it became clear they needed godly leadership. They needed a king who could represent them. So God made another covenant with David. And for a period, this seemed to be successful. But eventually, the kingship failed, and this led Israel into exile. Again, another, another exile. Their temple was destroyed, and this was Israel's lowest point as a nation, and really, arguably, one of the lowest points since the expulsion from the garden. But thankfully, that wasn't the end of the story. Okay? While they were in exile as a nation, God reminded them that His purposes weren't finished, even though they had failed. God reminded them of their failures, to be sure, but He also promised to restore them as a nation. Once and for all. Okay? He promised to break all the cycles of that Israel's been involved in. And that leads us to our second heading here tonight, and that's the, the restoration promises in the Old Testament. 
Let's take a moment now and look under this heading at some of the promises that the Old Testament makes about this final restoration. And we could highlight so many, but for the sake of time, I'm going to highlight two more key passages that Peter uses in our passage in 1 Peter. And this first one is from Isaiah's prophecy. And just for context, I'm going to give you Isaiah 42 and 43. And when you finish writing that, let's go ahead and turn over there. Isaiah 42. It's important to know, step back, Isaiah's a big book, 66 chapters, a lot going on in there. But it's important to know that Isaiah is super concerned about Israel's failure as this covenant partner. Because Israel's failure means light to the nations is not going to happen. That God's mission for the earth is sort of jammed up. They were supposed to proclaim His excellencies to the nations. They were supposed to be His priest kings like we saw. But they are deaf and dumb, spiritually speaking. That's what Isaiah says. They can't hear truth. They can't speak it. And so, he says, God judged them for their failure. Look in chapter 42. We'll pick it up in verse 18. You could literally, literally like jump in anywhere here, but we'll pick it up in 18. I'm going to read a lot of this to you, okay, so you can get the context. He says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Now, that's interesting. I'm not talking about capital S servant. I'm talking about Israel, his servant. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger, whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The, so what did the Lord do? The Lord was pleased for his righteousness, righteousness sake to magnify his law and to make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. It's like, why is this? this these are the covenant people. What's going on? They have become a plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore us. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for this time to come, for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey, i.e., they've not been faithful to the covenant partnership? So he poured on him the heat of his anger, and in the might of his battle, it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So the, the point is not a pretty picture here of the nation of Israel. A deaf and dumb servant. They've received the law. They've received the word of God, but it, to, no, to no avail. And they've been judged as a result of their idolatry and their disobedience. Massive problem, okay, in terms of God's purposes for the world. His, his servant is not acting like the servant. But he goes on in chapter 43 to say he's going to do something. He's going to redeem and restore them so they can be faithful witnesses. We'll skip over to, to verse 8 in chapter 43. Listen to the language. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. Who's he talking about? Israel. Who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them i.e. the Gentile idolaters, who can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring out their witnesses to prove them right, i.e. there aren't any. 
Let them bring out their witnesses and let them hear and say it's true. Now notice this. But you, Israel, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I send to Babylon. That's where they're exiled. And I bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord. Listen to the Exodus language here. Who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse and army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished and quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things. What? Don't remember the Exodus? Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. What's he doing? The specific promise that he's going to restore them is in verse 20 and 21. Look at it again. I've got to think out on the screen here. It says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Here it is. To give drink to my chosen people. That's restoration language. To the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. His overall point in this context is he is going to restore his people in something like a second Exodus, but greater. Something that will eclipse the Exodus so eclipse the Exodus so much that he says, don't remember it. And notice here, he calls Israel his chosen people, literally his chosen race. This is Hebrew, but in the Greek Old Testament version, which is what Peter's quoting from here, it's the same phrase. His chosen race. Then notice, he says why he's restoring his chosen people, or for what purpose? That they might declare my praise. Greek text, that they might declare my excellencies. Again, almost identical, little slight variation, but almost identical to what Peter says in his text. So in the context, the deaf and dumb witnesses called to account. God makes them his witnesses. He restores them. And now their mouths are open to declare his praises because they can understand. In the context, the deaf and dumb witnesses will be restored to actually declare the excellencies of the Lord. Peter will also allude to this in our text. So that's pretty straightforward. Okay, Israel was unfaithful, but God promises to fully and finally restore them to be his faithful witnesses in Isaiah 43. It's a new thing. It's better than the old exodus. Now let me highlight one more thing that's going to reappear in 1 Peter. One more passage. 
And that's, I, that's Hosea 1 and 2. Hosea 1 and 2. You're welcome to turn there, but I do have these on the screen. Hosea 1 and 2. Here again, Hosea's prophecy starts with Israel being rebuked for being an unfaithful covenant partner. Seeing a theme here. Literally, the nation is compared to a prostitute. You probably know the story. Uh, The Lord kind of shockingly tells Hosea to go marry one, go marry a prostitute as a symbol of this disobedience. It's a graphic picture. And this prostitute had a child in verse 6 of Hosea. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, said to Hosea, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Whoa. That is significant. It's highlighting in dramatic language the covenant unfaithfulness of his people. Then in verse 8, she had another child. And he said to name that one, not my people. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, verse 9, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Whoa. Like, that's another serious statement to the nation of Israel. Literally, he's, he's disinherited them because of their unfaithfulness. But lest we think that's the end, in the same prophecy, the Lord promises to restore the nation. Whoa. So even the strength of that language doesn't mean he's completely or will finally disinherit them. Because look what he says. He promises to restore his nation and to reverse their status. Look in verse 10 of Hosea 1. Like right after that, that verse we just read about, like, you're not my people anymore. Um, it's like massive gear shift to the positive. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. That's the Abrahamic promise. He's alluding to that promise. Which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Meaning I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to make you faithful. Look again, chapter 2, verse 23. And I will sow her for myself. Metaphor, like, like Israel is his plant. He's going to sow her in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So the point here that I'm making is that Israel's prophets were full of promises to restore the nation in her role as God's covenant partner. She's been unfaithful, but God's going to do something, and he's going to restore her. Her restoration would lead to Israel declaring God's word, declaring his praises, declaring his excellencies among the nation, being his faithful witnesses to the world. But how would Israel go from deaf and dumb to a restored witness? We've seen this before in our sermons together, but Isaiah is very clear. It would come through a faithful witness, a perfect Davidic king, a perfect representative, the Lord's servant with a capital S, who would represent Israel once and for all. He would live for her, he would die for her, 
He would be raised for her, and that is how he will restore her, according to Isaiah. And that leads to our third heading tonight, which is the restoration in Christ. In order for the nation of Israel to experience restoration, one would have to come and accomplish that restoration on her behalf. And it would have to come from outside of humanity. God himself. But it would have to be accomplished by a human. Faithful covenant partner. And so this son who would be born would also be called a mighty God. Like we sing about at Christmas. And he would have to succeed where all others had failed. And the New Testament is clear. He has come, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Now let me give you just a few indicators from the Gospel of Luke. I mean, we could spend, I could preach like five series on this. Let me give you just a few indicators from Luke that this Jesus is the one to restore the nation. We're not going to turn there. We're not going to even look at it. But let me just mention a few things here. Luke goes to great lengths in Luke chapter 3 to show that Jesus is this covenant son. The Father declares it from heaven. This is my son, beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. That's Psalm 2 and Isaiah 43, I believe. Or 42. So clearly attested from heaven as the faithful son. Then, very next verse, Luke goes, he goes on to show us by the genealogy that Jesus is this son. He traces Jesus' lineage not just back to David, he does. Not just back to Abraham, he does. That's what Matthew does. But he goes all the way back to Adam himself. Now why does he do that? Well, he's doing that to show that Jesus represents the entire line of this sonship. Humanity. Including Israel. Okay? So declared from heaven by God. It's like he takes us through a bunch of names all the way back to Adam. Then where does he go? The wilderness. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Why did he go there? Well, he went to the place where Israel failed. The wilderness. Where they grumbled. Where they were sentenced to for 40 years. And why did he go there? He went there to be tempted by Satan. Like Adam was. But where Israel and Adam failed, he succeeded. He emerged faithful. And he continued faithful to the cross. And it was there on the cross where he he did what we could not do. He endured the wrath of the Father against all of the covenant unfaithful. He was judged and exiled on Israel's behalf. And not just her. On behalf of the entire world. He represented Israel, but he also represented Adam, the father of all the nations. He accomplished the means of our forgiveness, and finally he was resurrected from the dead. He was fully restored by God himself. So in the Messiah, the resurrection, the restoration is complete. With Messiah having initiated that final, that new resurrection, it was now time for him to start restoring the nation of Israel to himself, as he promised, as Isaiah predicted, climactically once and for all. That leads to our fourth heading. We say restoration is in process now. And guess where it started? After Christ. 
it started with the Jews. And particularly, Jesus signaled the restoration of the nation by the appointment of the twelve disciples. Of the twelve disciples. Think about this with me, okay? The fact that Jesus appointed twelve Jewish men is significant. They represent the leadership of restored Israel. Of the twelve tribes of Israel. In fact, Jesus makes this explicit in Luke 22. He's talking to, his, to, to the disciples. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So that's at least one of the purposes of the twelve. In this case, it was eleven, so they're looking around. And... That's why they appointed Matthias in Acts chapter 2, because they needed to complete the number of the, of the 12. This means then that the 12 were significant for the restoration of Israel. Their number, here it is, signaled that the restoration had begun. And they knew it too. And they knew it. How do we know that? As evidenced by what they asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Christ is resurrected. He's been teaching them about this kingdom for the last 40 days. Lord, will you at this time restore, you hear the language? Restore the kingdom to Israel? So he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We don't have time to preach a message on this. Those are God's words from Isaiah 42. And Jesus is saying those words to the disciples. One of the clearest evidences of divinity, I think. He's taking this and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses of Yahweh himself as restored Israel. So my point here, what were they asking? Okay, when they're asking about this kingdom being restored, they were asking if now was the time for the full restoration, or we might say the consummation of the restoration. And what was Jesus' response? He says, don't worry about that. Instead, you get busy being my faithful covenant partner. You get busy being the restored witnesses that Isaiah talked about. You are no longer deaf and dumb. You have seen me and can testify about me, and I have opened your eyes and opened your ears to hear. So get after it. You don't worry about the times and the seasons the Father's fixed. That's his prerogative, to bring the full restoration. You get about being faithful as my witnesses. And as the twelve witnesses, guess what happens? Thousands of Jews in Jerusalem convert. Thousands more in Judea and Samaria convert. So we could say the restoration is extending to believing Jews. And this is exactly what we would expect based on what the prophets predicted. The Jews are experiencing restoration by the work of their Messiah. But here's the wrinkle. Something unexpected also happens in Acts. Not completely unforeseen, but not super clear in the Old Testament. Some Jews don't receive the Messiah. In fact, the Jewish leadership starts opposing their Jewish brothers who follow Jesus. 
Isaiah actually alludes to this, by the way. We can talk about that uh, if you want. But it's not super clear. But the Jewish leadership start opposing their Jewish brothers who follow Jesus. They start persecuting their own countrymen. So that was a wrinkle. Unexpected. And what else becomes clear as Acts unfolds is that if you reject Jesus as a Jew, you are cut off from the people. Meaning, from the nation. In other words, you're not a true Israelite. You're not part of restored Israel unless you repent and trust in the Messiah. If you choose to reject him, you're cut off from the true nation of Israel. You're disinherited. Peter says this to the Jews. One Jew saying it to another Jew. Look at this. Moses says, the Lord your God, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's referencing Jesus in the context. That's the prophet like Moses. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, that's Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. Meaning cut off from the nation. Disinherited. Even more staggering. Listen to what Jesus himself says to Gentile Christians over in Revelation 3.9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Got these Jews in their synagogue, worshiping Yahweh, holding up Torah, saying that the Christians are doing something they shouldn't be doing. In their synagogue, that's the synagogue of Satan, says Jesus. They're claiming to be Jews. They are not, says Jesus. They're disinherited. They lie, Jesus said. And then he says, I'm going to make them come and bow down before you, Gentile Christians. That is wild. And they will learn that I have loved them. So my point here is for the Jew, their restoration depends on their response to Jesus. Their claim to the promises of Abraham, their inheritance, the blessings, all of that rides on whether or not they submit to Jesus. But Acts makes clear that a division happened within that nation. Not all the Jews believed in him, and that was a little surprising. Not completely out of left field, but a little surprising. And Paul calls this partial hardening of the Jewish people a mystery over in Romans 11.25. It's not outside the plan of God, it's part of the plan of God. But it was harder to see. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, a mystery is something that wasn't super clear in the Old Testament. It's not that it wasn't there at all. It just wasn't super clear. It wasn't clearly revealed that there would be a hardening of part of the nation. Not the entire nation, part of the nation. But notice God's purpose. How long will the hardening last? Until, he says, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. In. That's interesting language. And that coming in, i.e. to true Israel, that was also a surprise to the first century Jewish Christians. That Gentiles would be part of Israel as co-heirs with the Jews at that level, apart from circumcision and all those other things, that that would happen, they would have the Spirit as Gentiles. That was like mind-blowing that was not anticipated. 
And this means then that it was God's merciful plan to include Gentiles too in that restoration of the nation. Meaning, the restoration didn't just stop at the Jews, but it continued. The remnant of Israel exploded with believing Gentiles. It extends, the restoration extends to the believing Gentiles. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. Once the Jewish remnant believed, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, once the stage was set, the Gentiles could now be included and included into true Israel. It surprised Peter in Acts 10. I mean, we're talking Peter, not like Peter pre-Christ, pre-Spirit, Peter post-Christ, post-Spirit, Acts 10, he's been evangelizing. It surprised him. The Spirit came to Cornelius the Gentile as Peter was preaching in the same way he came to the Jews at Pentecost. And Peter calls this inclusion of all these non-Jews, he calls this a mystery too, this inclusion of the Gentiles. This is something that wasn't super clear in the Old Testament. Now look at what he says in Ephesians 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's the other side of the hardening mystery. It's like the other side of the coin. Okay, this group was hardened. We didn't expect that. And this group was included. We didn't expect that. That's a mystery. Now, you might be wondering at this point, hang on, Clay, doesn't the Old Testament predict that the Gentiles would be saved? Right? Yeah. But it's not super clear exactly how it's going to happen or really like at what level it's going to happen. It's definitely not clear that the Gentiles are going to become part of Israel like restored Israel like this, become inheritors of all the promises to, to Abraham, going to benefit from Israel. They, it was clear that, they, that it was, they were going to benefit from Israel's restoration somehow, but it wasn't super clear that they were going to be on equal status with them as co-heirs of everything promised to the Jews. There were hints, of course, but nothing as explicit as what these apostles are teaching in the New Covenant. So if I can put it as simply as possible, The Gentiles are included within true Israel alongside the believing Jew. And that is the the now revealed mystery that Paul's talking about here. So, I know this is a lot. Okay? I know you're you're giving me great time. Appreciate that. I'm pushing an hour right now, and I'm very thankful. But this is your one shot, okay? Let's step back, let's summarize what we've seen. The restoration predicted in the Old Testament to the Israelite nation is underway now. It started in Christ. It extended, as we would expect, to many Jews who believed. And then in a surprise, a bit of a surprise, some Jews rejected and thus forfeited their place among God's nation. Then it was offered in response to Gentiles, and many Gentiles accepted the message and were included in Israel's restoration. So why did I drag you through all that? Because I want you to see that incorporation into true Israel hinges on what you do with Jesus. No matter where you're from. He represents true Israel as the faithful Israelite. And if you believe in Him, you're restored into the nation, so to speak. And I drug you through it because this grid helps you make sense with what's happening in 1 Peter. Is written to a predominantly Gentile church. And it explains how Peter can say 
that the church today, even you and me as foreigners, Gentiles, are fulfilling the promise that God made to Israel around her restoration. True Israel is exploding with Gentiles in the last days. And so let's move along in our fifth heading here. Just be brief here. Fifth heading, restoration in 1 Peter chapter 2. In light of everything we've looked at, let's read afresh Peter's description of the identity and purpose of the church. And let's see if you can hear the echoes. All right, back in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear that? With all that in the background, it becomes evidently clear what Peter is saying as he describes us in this way. He's saying that the church, made up of believing Jew and Gentile, is part of God's restored people, his restored nation, his true Israel, we might even say. Now let's look a little more carefully at verse 9, and then we'll look at verse 10. Notice how he describes both our identity and purpose in the very language predicted from the Old Testament prophets. Okay, Here's verse 9. See it on the screen? Look at this. When he calls us a chosen race, he's echoing back to Isaiah 43.20. Okay? He's echoing back to that text that predicted Israel as his chosen race would be restored as a faithful witness. You think that's a little scant, just that one little phrase? How, are you, where are you, how, how do you know it's an illusion? Okay, because down here. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness? That purpose statement? is almost verbatim what you see in Isaiah 43. He comes back around to the same text in Isaiah at the end of this verse when he talks about our purpose to proclaim his excellencies. So, I'll come back here, but just again, remember, give drink to my chosen people, Isaiah 43, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Greek version, that they might declare my excellence. Okay? There's that. All right, what about the rest of it? What about the rest of these descriptions from our identity? Where do they come from? They come from Exodus 19, when God installed Israel as his covenant partner. Royal priesthood, Exodus 19.6. Holy nation, Exodus 19.6. A people for his own possession, Exodus 19.6. You forgot? There it is. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant to Israel, you shall be my treasured possession. That was that last phrase there. All the earth is mine. Verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. There it is. A holy nation. Okay? Back to 1 Peter 2.9. Bam, bam, bam. Right there in a row. No mistaking what Peter's doing here. So what's his point? Peter is embedding, look at this, he is embedding one of the key texts about Israel's identity. Exodus 19. He's embedding that with a strong promise of her restoration. Isaiah 43. You see? Israel's identity, her mission, as a covenant partner, embedded with the promise of restoration in like a cool little package for us. And then he says it applies to the church. He's applying the promises of rest, the restoration of Israel to the church. Now why is that significant? Well, think 
about how encouraging this is for us, for starters. Okay? What Israel of old could never fully do, they never experienced that final restoration under the old covenant. This true Israel, both Jew and Gentile, in the new, they've experienced this in Christ, this restoration, and that includes us. And not only that, but your conversion to Christ is an evidence of God's faithfulness to restore His people and of God's faithfulness to His promises. Your conversion represents a fulfillment of a promise made millennia ago. You are part of a restoration that is so much bigger than you have dared to even realize. And not only that, but you have been swept up into the greatest mission on earth. Now that you're part of restored Israel, part of the holy nation, it is your task to proclaim His excellencies to the unbelieving Gentiles, like Israel was supposed to do in the Old Covenant. God's purposes for the world were jammed, and now He's blown that open. And He's given it to us. Gentiles. Once Gentiles, now incorporated into true Israel. Now, you've been restored to do this mission. And notice, that's where Peter goes next in verse 11 of this passage. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which weighs war against your soul. Listen to this. Keep your conduct among who? The Gentiles. Honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's point is that you're no longer a, a Gentile pagan. You've been incorporated in the people of God, true Israel, and now your job is to be a light to, to see, to, to both in your deeds and in your words, be that light to the Gentiles. And your mouth then, your words, your praise, is what's involved in this proclamation in this mission, you get to testify to how excellent God is, how merciful He is, how good He is, how restorative He is. You get to testify as His witness, as a restored servant of the servant. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Peter's going to go on in this letter to help us work the angles on this testimony, on declaring His excellencies among the nations as God's people. We'll get to that next semester. But the, the word-based testimony is not all that's involved here in Peter's mind. We get to proclaim His excellencies in another way, too, in how we live. As we reflect His excellencies, the excellencies of His character in our lives. As we learn to take on His virtues as King and act nobly, Peter's going to help us learn how to do this, too, in the practical areas of our lives in the rest of this letter. Now, as glorious as this calling is, sometimes we might be tempted to think that we're not worthy of it or doubt if we really belong to this people because of our past sin. So Peter puts an exclamation point on this text in verse 10 with a beautiful assurance, an assurance that's again another allusion to the prophets. Okay, Verse 10, you probably hear it, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You did not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. Where's that from? Hosea. Hosea 1.9, not a people, but now you're God's people. Hosea 2.23, once you had not received mercy, Hosea 1.6, but now you have received mercy, Hosea 2.23. This is an assurance to the restored Jews and Gentiles alike. No matter of past unfaithfulness, past idolatry, past unbelief, Jews that crucified Jesus, 
Gentiles who worshipped all the pagan gods in the, in the Roman Empire, you and I today, no matter how gross your immorality was that you came from, you've been incorporated into Christ. Once you were not a people, you had forefathers, you had traditions, you had idolatry in your life. That's not who you are anymore. You're God's people now. Once you were under God's judgment, but now you're not. You've received mercy. How? Through Christ. Christ took your place. He was punished on your behalf. He earned your righteousness. And so Hosea and the promises God made to the nation in Hosea are being fulfilled now in the church. And so as glorious as this is, okay, First Peter, we're going to come back to this next semester, so don't feel like we didn't cover exactly all the implications here. We didn't uh, of this text. But I can't, I had like three sermons in one. You guys are like, yeah, we know. Um, so in light of that, I got a sixth point here. Uh, restoration is yet to come. So we've been talking about the glory of this restoration, that it's in process. Now we've seen how Peter's thinking about this. But if Peter were to be here now, he would say it is not yet complete. It's not done. It's not finished yet. And I just want to give you some data points of what is yet to come. Okay? Be like, one more minute, two more minutes. I don't even have notes on this, so take my word for it. The restoration is yet to come, okay? What else needs to be restored? Well, you could add on one thing before that, the, the fullness of the Gentiles, number one. That's assumed in what I was talking about. But then, when that has happened, hardened Israel. That portion of Israel that has remained in rebellion and hardness against for God, at the end of this age, that hardness will be lifted, according to Paul in Romans 11. And all Israel, he says, will be saved. Meaning the majority of the nation, the ethnic nation of Israel. But they will be saved back into Christ and the church. So all of hardened Israel, that's coming. And then the restoration will extend. Christ returns. Revelation 20. The saints are raised from the dead glorified, and we reign with Christ for a really long time, for a thousand years, that's what Revelation says. Satan is bound. He's put into a pit that closed, so he can't deceive the nations anymore. So Christ comes, slaughters his enemies, which I'm assuming, based on some of the other prophetic literature, that there are survivors of the nations. And then we reign over them in glorified bodies in Revelation 20. We bring the earth into submission to his kingship. And then there's one final rebellion at the end of Revelation 20. Satan is released from the pit. He deceives the nations. They come against us. And fire from heaven destroys them. And Satan finally is thrown into the same pit that the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. And that leads to the restoration of the entire universe. The new heavens and the new earth come at the end of Revelation 21 and 22, and that is the eternal state and the fullness of the restoration. And there's really no way to end a message like this except with Paul's words from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And at the end of this section where he's meditated on Gentile inclusion, Jewish hardening, Jewish restoration, the end of the age, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. We are God's restored people. Hallelujah. Father, we stand in awe of all that you've accomplished for us week in and week out as we gaze into your word. and We're humbled by our inclusion into this plan, our place in it. We don't deserve to be here, and yet we are your treasured people. So thank you for that privilege. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts that as we continue to make progress in our obedience, that we would do it with hope, in you, knowledge of your presence, knowing that your, your plans stand, that all of these things will be fulfilled, the final restoration will occur, and you're going to give it all to us in your great grace. We say thank you, and we glorify you tonight. May our fellowship be sweet in Jesus' name.